Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm pumped to have Chris Brogan on the episode today. Chris Brogan is the world's leading authority on owning the game you most want to win. Combining a mix of professional leadership development and business strategy, Chris works with professionals like you to own your choices, own your life, and own your future. He is the CEO of Owner Media Group, a highly sought-after professional speaker and the New York Times best-selling author of eight books and counting, including The Freaks Shall Inherit the Earth and Just Start Here. Chris has spoken for or consulted with the biggest brands you know, including Disney, Coke, Google, GM, Microsoft, Caldwell Banker, Titleist, Scotts, Humana Health, Cisco, Sony USA, and many more. He's appeared on the Dr. Phil Show, interviewed Richard Branson for a cover story of For the Success magazine, and once even presented to a princess. People like Paulo Coelho, Harvey McKay, and Stephen Pressfield enjoy sharing their projects and best ideas with Chris because they know he'll share them with you. Tony Robbins had Chris on his Internet Money Master Series, and Forbes listed Chris as one of the must-follow marketing minds of 2014, as well as listing his website as one of the 100 best websites for entrepreneurs. Most importantly, Chris provides education and tools to help you make your life and your business thrive by teaching you how to own the game you most want to win. Through events and courses and other tools, Chris is dedicated to helping you grow your capabilities and connections into getting you to that next level of ownership, no matter where you are in the process right now. Chris also offers limited personal coaching and offers limited consulting to businesses. Chris lives in northern Massachusetts with his better half, Jacqueline Carley. He has two loving children and a loving pair of parents as well. Chris, thanks so much for the great work you do and being on the episode today. Thrilled to be here, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Man, I'm really excited about this. So let's go back to origin stories. We like to talk a lot about heroes and, and sort of your journey. So tell us how you got started on this crazy entrepreneurial road. That's an interesting question in general. I think that you know, I think some people know that from when they're a little kid that they're possibly entrepreneurial. And what I wouldn't be is I wouldn't be one of those guys that was just figuring out how to make money left and right. I just had crazy ideas from when I was younger. Gene Simmons of Kiss, like right away was coming up with these crazy things like, you know, I'll go get comic books and then I'll charge everyone a quarter to look at them. And like, there's a revenue stream, right? My ideas were more like I had this cockamamie idea and couldn't figure out how to make money from it. So I could say that way back from age six, I'm pretty sure I knew I was different. Uh, I just wasn't monetizable <laughs> for quite some time after that. Um, but along the way, I mean, I worked for Ma Bell, the phone company. I had a lot of weird jobs before that. And then I got into wireless telecom. And then after a while where I ended up was... I had been blogging for a while. And uh, as of this point, I've been blogging 17 years, which is crazy. Um, and in that process, I, I just started finding more and more opportunities. And then after a while, I figured out how to make a business out of things like content marketing and whatever and consulting with companies. And after I got sick of consulting, I started making courses and things and working with people a little bit more individually. And I guess that's where the story rejoins us. So 
I'm going to take our listener back into it. So you said 17 years, which that means 1998, right? That you were blog. So you still had to do the whole modem dial-up thing, right? Um, of, in AOL. Yeah, man, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, when I started blogging, it was called journaling and there was no real software for it. And we were using kind of WYSIWYG software, which, you know, honestly, the way I started blogging was almost like using a spreadsheet. It was the left column bar was the date and then the right, I would put in the text and then the next day I would hit you know, control X, drop it down a level and control V and then start again. And that's really how I blogged for a really long time until tools finally started showing up. And, you know, I didn't do it because I thought I would somehow be some kind of wizard. I just thought, you know, this is cool. I can publish my own fiction stories without anyone telling me they're stupid. And that was really where it all started. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up because, you know, you and I have been on this road for a while. And I remember, you know, even in 2004, even that late in the game, like monetizing a blog and monetizing ones like savvy around social media, that was still like not a thing that was done. Like you, we had to convince people that that was a legit, like that was a thing. Yeah, no, I, I would say, I mean, it took me a long, long time to figure out the way business would connect with something like that. And I think that it's one of those scenarios where it seemed like a good idea, but I couldn't quite figure it all together. I thought for a long time it was just going to be like advertising, just like in magazines and things. And some people do that, but it's pretty few and far between the kind of people that make loot doing it that way versus other ways. So your earlier big positioning, or at least how I found out about Chris, was really around social media. And, you, and you've grown considerably, and we'll talk about that evolution. But am I right that social media was really like the the, the sauce there once you started monetizing and, and figuring out how to go? Well, it's what everyone seemed to want to label what I was into, which was I was using these different digital tools to make business happen. And so I've always kind of had this chip on my shoulder saying, I'm not into social media. Like I don't find it interesting. It's because everyone else who uses it and uses those terms, they want to discuss, should we be on Meerkat or Periscope? And I could care less. I, you know, it's to me, it's like talking about, should my phone be white or black? And, uh, you know, to me, it's like, well, did someone pick up when you dialed? So I guess that's where my chip on shoulder comes from that. But yeah, I would say that where people wanted to understand my view is, does this blogging thing mean anything? And should we use Twitter and all that kind of crap, which are social media tools. So that's what people wanted to know from me for quite a while. Yeah. So what was interesting is that I, I've read your work and I've you know, um, followed you for quite a while. And when it comes to being a marketer, like it doesn't seem like the most natural fit for you in a way. Right. Um, in, in that when I think of a lot of marketers and you know, certain images come up and Chris Brogan is, it's this like black sheep in there. And I think that's one of the things that we love about you, Chris, is that you approach it in a way that it, it's, it's human, right? It's very human. It's very approachable and so on and so forth. So did you ever have any attention, any attention with that whole marketer label, especially the internet marketer label, or did you just kind of accept it and roll with it? Well, it's funny because every now and again, I'll get dragged into scenarios where the other people in the room are in really internet marketers like capital I, capital M. So for instance, uh, this is such a great name drop. Tony Robbins contacted me and he was like, Hey, I'm doing this internet money master series and I want you to be part of it. And I was like, uh, okay. Like the other people on this series are like Frank Kern and all these names that people know as the internet marketers. And it is such a vivid difference. Like if you watch the DVD series, it's like, this is how you kill your list. This is how you murder people's throats. And then me, we should hug. Like everyone's 
to love each other. And it is so clear that I am cut from a different cloth. And I don't say that to be mean to those guys, but I am 100% different than, than those other gentlemen, except that we both happen to use computers to, to connect with people. And so I, I've never really, the label internet marketer has almost never been applied to me very well uh, by others. You know, they'll be like, oh, he's one of, no, he's not. And so that's fine. And then I guess uh, the other thing I've always said is, I mean, if you really look for the underpinnings of everything I've done for well over a decade, what it really is, is I want people to treat my mom better when she goes to buy something, or I want them to treat everybody better. And I use my mom as the avatar for that. And so I think that a lot of things in marketing and sales are broken and that there's really easy, simplistic ways to help people figure it all out. Let's tease that out a little bit. I mean, give me one or two things that you think are really broken that you're on a mission to, to fix. Well, you know, I just, it's so weird. I was just getting interviewed by this really nice guy and he was saying, well, let's talk about Twitter, for instance. He goes, for instance, um, about a third of what I put out there are quotes that I find inspirational. And a third of what I do is, you know, my own stuff. And then a third is promoting people who have been the guests on my show. And I said, I would cut out the quotes. I said, I would venture to guess that no one's out there going, man, I really hope an inspirational quote floats by. And I said, no one cares. I, you know, I, I said, I, th- I think we're all using these tools like, oh, quick, throw some more junk in the, in the stream because we haven't talked lately. And we're making noise for no good reason. And so I think that one of the things that's broken is it's robots talking to robots. And I think that something like Twitter, for instance, I have 307,000 followers on Twitter because I've been around since, you know, the first few months it was open. And of those 300,000, if I say, go check out this cool thing I did, uh, 290 to 400 or so people will take an action out of 300,000, which is bigger than most towns we live in, you know? And so that's crazy. And then on my newsletter, which is like 35,000 or so people, I asked someone to do something and 18,000 might do it. That's almost half, right? So I think that what's broken is we've, we've filled these channels with a bunch of junk because we thought that's what we were supposed to do is like create a stream of data. And it's not, I'm not saying automate or don't, I'm not saying engage or don't. I'm saying, don't say anything. If you have nothing interesting to say, don't just pump stuff to just pump it out there. Yeah. I think it's a quote from maybe Plato that, um, fools talk because they need, they, because they need to hear themselves. Whereas wise men talk because they have something to say. That's a really good quote. I guess it goes with Franklin's quote about, uh, better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and prove it. Exactly. Right. Um, but the thing about it is, and, and we won't stay too long on, on social media marketing or anything like that. The, the challenge is when you strip away the quotes, I use quotes and actually people like them. So I've tested this, but anyways, um, the thing about it is, is it really hard to come up with something worth saying when you turn on the hypercritical sort of that, like, is this good enough? Is this not as opposed to just talking, just having a conversation with someone like, you know, what if Chris mom was in front of you? Would you be digging through a pool of content to like serve her? Or would you actually t- like have a legitimate conversation? Just something to think about. It's definitely something. I mean, to me, there's all these amazing posts, like, you know, 15 things we should be doing different. And, uh, you know, uh, is a wireless microphone a better thing? And, you know, all these, I mean, to me, there's there's content that's going to serve and then there's content that's just going to smack us in the face, so to speak. And I think that there's, um, I think there's, I mean, Jay Bear's book, Utility, is one of the best books out there, 2014, for how to make really good, useful content come about. That was Jay Bear's Utility. He threw that in. We'll drop that into the show notes. 
Speaking of really useful content, let's talk about your books. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but your first traditionally published book was Trust Agents. Yep. And that was the first one I published, period. Like, uh, I mean, maybe I may had a few PDFs or something, but nothing like on Amazon before that. And since then, you've written seven other books. Um, and what fascinates me is that you're practicing the both and strategy of publishing in that you're still doing some traditional publishing. Um and you're also doing, you know, some some indie side projects as well. And both are doing really well. Um, how do you decide which way to go for each one of those different projects? That's a really good question, Charlie. I think that <laughs> there's two deciding factors. So I'm friends with a, a variety of different publishers. So Matt Holt and Shannon Vargo and some of the people at Wiley, I'm friends with them. So at this point, like, you know, there has to be a real business value for them to say they would want to give me a book. Uh, but... We also, and I still put a proposal in for every book. And so does Stephen King, by the way, um, and everybody else. So I, it's not like I have any special up on working with a uh, mainstream publisher. However, sometimes I'll give them a book because I say, oh, this one seems like something that would be great for you to handle. And then other times it's just something that I know they're not going to want it anyway. I'll, I'll give you an example that I didn't actually go through with. Um, and I still, I regret not doing it. My kids were really into Minecraft, the video game Minecraft. And I, I loved it too. And I was playing it just as much as they were. I was playing it when they weren't here, you know? And I was just like, wow, this is something. So I thought School of Blocks, what my kids taught me through Minecraft would be a cool book title. And there, and I sent it to one particular publisher. I almost outed them. I sent it to one particular publisher because it was the only one of the publishers I'm friends with that would have said yes. And they were like, nah, I don't think anyone wants a book on Minecraft. Now, since then, hundreds of books on Minecraft have come out. Millions and millions of dollars have changed hands. I'm sure it would have been a hit. I should have self-published it. I should have just stuck it out there, you know, put it up on Create Space or something in Amazon. I'm sure it would have sold a gazillion copies because it was years before other parents were thinking this was a cool thing. So I really regret that. So I will put out a book if I know that the publisher's not going to give it its best due. Um, and But I think what most people do is they, it's, they think of self-publishing as if nobody else likes me, I might as well like myself. But man, guys like James Altucher and Claudia Altucher have totally proven that you don't need the mainstream for anything. It's just a choice at one point. So I, I like mainstream publishing for some things and I get frustrated for others. Why didn't you publish the book though? I, you know, I, time, I guess. I was just at that point, I was just like, well, I could do this or I could work on revenue generating products and books don't make money for the most part. So you usually do books for love and people don't get that. Um, the other thing is David Maester said the book is the best $25 business card you can't buy. And what's kind of true about that is if I had a book about Minecraft, where would I go with that? Like I would be, I don't know, I'd be speaking at South by, but you know, that would be the last place on earth I'd want to be. So I guess that would be why I didn't really finally do it. Yeah. So you had the love, but not the strategy. Exactly. So good. So let's talk about your first, Hmm. Maybe not your first three years, because you mentioned that you were blogging in, in, in the early days. So it may not have like been a business sort of, you might not have had your business head on at that point. But once you're like, okay, I'm in business, I'm making a go of this. In those first three years, what were, what was the hardest lesson that you learned during those first three years? Wow. Um, yeah. You know, it's an interesting story, I guess, to tell out of that, Charlie, is that my rise in success was very fast. And what ended up, when I say that, like, you know, it took 10 years before anyone really gave a rat's ass who I was, but then whoosh. And suddenly I was, you know, I was turning away 
Fortune 100 companies. Just like, well, I'm sorry, I've got a little too much on my plate. Uh, you know, maybe these guys can help you. And I mean, that's that's crazy. And there was only three people in my first company when I founded uh, New Marketing Labs. We were just a division of three people. So we usually, when we show up to a meeting with like Sony Electronics or something, it would be us three, and then they'd have 85 people. And, you know, it really came clear really quick that we couldn't really be an agency. We just had to be like a consultancy. Um, the thing I made the biggest mistake on early on was just chasing every fly ball just because it seemed like there were just so many opportunities. And Brian Clark, who runs Copyblogger Media, Brian said to me one day on a stage, I said to him something like, well, Brian, how do you decide like what to go after? Because to me, like I have just a hundred, uh, hundred opportunities, but only room for eight. So what do I do? And he said, I just serve the community that I've been, you know, granted the opportunity to serve. And I said, oh, and it took me like three years to get to that to be really true. But I would say that that's probably the biggest mistake was I was just going after whatever, you know, because, oh, hey, opportunity. And now I go after only what I can do to help and serve some nice people. Good. So just pull us in space and time. When was that three year mark? When would you really say like, oh, that's an idea that I'm actually going to lean into? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so three years after that advice was given to me, it would be 2012 or so. And then, you know, I, it's funny. The other thing I tell people, especially about the entrepreneurial journeys, everyone thinks it's just, you know, bottom left to upper right. And it's just just, you know, you figure out success and suddenly you get all kinds of money. But if you're doing it right, you go broke a bunch of times. And if you're doing it right, you make a big failure. And then you're like, oh, crap, I got to I got to go in again. And I just went through like 2013 and 2014 were two of my worst years ever. Um, the, the only other re reasonably similarly worse was, I think, 2011, where I had like I had a whole staff of like 10 people and I had to let go six. So that was raw. But uh, this time and we've been lean ever since. But we were still like, I don't know if we can make payroll. Oops, we can't make payroll this month. Pay the, pay the lowest paid guy first and work our way up to me. And so, you know, there was a couple of ramen days in the last couple of years. And people are like, what? Are you kidding me? You're a New York Times bestseller, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know what? Donald Trump went billions of dollars in the hole a couple times. Uh, I could certainly go a few thousand into the hole a bunch of times. So... Yeah. And, but what you learn, Charlie, is that you, you learn if you do it right, that the more you serve the people that you have the pleasure to serve and the more where you feel, figure out where you belong versus where you try to fit in, that's where it all gets better. I really appreciate you sharing that because a lot of the people listening to the show are so afraid of that failure, so afraid of that trough, right? Where so many of the epiphanies and insights and really that, that fight to remain to serve your community happens when you're eating ramen, you're a few in the hole, and you're like, why the hell am I doing this, right? And then something happens, right? Just boom, something happens, and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm in the game again, right? Um, and so it's really important that you, you lean into those types of things. So thanks so much for sharing that with us, Chris. Anytime. Um, I've, as I said, I've followed you for a while. I've heard you speak in plenty of venues, and I've got to say, you're the most confident that I've ever seen you, right? Speaking and, you know, things like that. So what's the secret sauce now for you? I mean, what's really changed for you now that, that maybe wasn't there a couple of years ago? That's interesting. I, I would say that I'm probably a lot more grounded, and grounded looks like confidence. And I am very confident. I've been confident all along. I would say that there's probably been a little bit of thrashing over the last few years because one of the things I was trying so hard to do is just pull some of the labels off and be like, look, I am 
not interested in social media, but this would make your company run so much better. And really, I, I think that finally just got beaten back out of me. I, you know, uh, there's this story that's going around about the Beach Boys uh, trying to do their sort of last reunion. And what Brian Wilson keeps saying is cool. It gives us a chance to play that experimental music that we were making right at the end. And everyone's like, don't play that, play the hits. And, you know, it, there's this feeling of being like a child prodigy where, you know, you've got to play that, you know, Macaulay Culkin Home Alone character and you'll never be anything but that. And I think that, you know, when you fight against anything like that, you're kind of doomed. You've just got to play the hits. So what I did was I distilled what I was willing to talk about over the last decade plus of what I've been doing into something I thought could better serve people. And uh, I, I, I did enough to hide the broccoli inside the cake. So people are like, I want cake. I'm like, okay, here's your cake. Broccoli, 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 you know? And so that's what I did to fix it, Charlie. So when I go to events now or when I'm speaking or when you see me kind of out and about, what I'm doing is I'm still, I'm still giving exactly the message that I intend to give. And if you need to hear it this way and I say, here's how blogging makes you better, but I'm secretly sneaking in how to make you a better human being, it's fine. I'll, I'll deliver my weapon that way. Yeah, that's a great one. I, I went through a similar rough patch with productivity as well, right? Productivity and planning. I'm like, I don't want to talk about it forever. But, you know, it, it's kind of one of those things where that that's the, the position where pe- that lets you start the conversation, right? And then how you take that conversation, how you own it, how you help people makes all the difference, right? right. Um, so we keep talking about this shift. Now, I think it's the shift from sort of Chris Brogan, social media expert blogging dude, to your newer focus on owning and things like that, right? Am, am I correct that that's been the major shift? Yeah, when I when I went to talk to people about being an owner and being a lot more responsible and those sorts of things, uh, well, you know, I had a great talk with uh, uh, Joel Com, and Joel Com said to me, that's like, you know, that's like the least sexy thing in the world. Ownership is like saying, uh, I would like to be much more responsible. And no one is saying, I would love to be much more responsible. And so you got to think about that. And I was like, okay. So instead about, you know, ownership, what I started to be willing to talk about that, you know, is something I've been saying for years is that business is about be- uh, belonging and that, you know, we're sick of trying to fit in. We want to just figure out where we belong. I can hide all my ownership messages inside of belonging and it's perfectly fine. So that's what I've chosen to do. So let's talk about some of the spark moments of your career, like those those things where you knew that you were taking off in a way that really resonated with you. Because it's easy, as you mentioned, for things to take off and not really be you, but it's kind of the opportunity that's presented to you. But what were the two or three moments where you were doing something, you're like, man, this is really my jam. This is really what I want to do. That's a good question because a lot of times the things were, I, like I've always known when it's just something where it was just for a bag of money or something. I've always known where it was a bad idea and I've said yes to a bad idea. And I've always said to people, especially in consulting, um, the biggest measure of success is being able to say no to what you don't think you should do. And I think that those those kind of horror moments, as I like to call them very candidly, you know, is when, uh, you know, I'd like to eat. So, okay, let's go have this sex, you know, that I don't want to have. So that's, that's where that, you know, the hor- the horrendous part of being a consultant or being a entrepreneurial type come where I've hit it really sparky and where things have just been exactly right. 
Um, you know, for instance, I had a really great, a lot of times that come to mind are on stage. So one of them was at World Domination Summit a couple of years ago at Chris Gillibo's place. And I talked about uh, superpowers and uh, your hidden superpowers and all that. And I felt great. It was one of my favorite speeches I ever gave. A year or so later, I came to his Pioneer Nation event and gave another speech that I really loved. And again, just sort of felt like, oh, this is the stuff, you know. And I would say that beyond that, the moments I feel kind of in a groove are usually somewhat private just insofar as like I'm writing or I'm shooting a video that I'm going to put up or something. And I'm like, Oh, this, this feels right. We um, very recently launched a project called online course maker where we were just going to make a webinar. And, and really honestly, here's how the, the process went. I just, because it's kind of a funny story. I'm like, okay, we're going to try Jeff Walker's product launch formula, basically where we close the card on something and we've never closed the card. It's, you know, please buy stuff every day is all we think. Uh, uh, but like, okay, well, uh, we're going to do that. But, you know, we should do another quick $20 webinar because it would be nice to help other people and then also have a few thousand in the bank because I'm terrified when we close the cart, I'm going to be eating ramen and we're not going to be able to pay one of our employees again. Um, and so uh, we do, let's do this thing on online courses. Rob says something about Course Maker. I said, online Course Maker. I go to um, GoDaddy. The URL is free. I'm like, oh online course maker. That's an awesome URL. So I buy it. I say, let's do this webinar. I start putting slides together, which I don't normally use slides in my webinars, but I'm like, wow, I'm up to like slide 90 or something. I'm like, oh, this isn't going to fit in an hour. Like I couldn't possibly say this on it. This is going to be a crappy webinar. Oh, so I show it to Rob and he looks at it. He goes, oh, that's a course. And I was like, yeah, oh, I made a mistake. I said, should we just give people their money back? And he goes, well, just let them know. So I sent him, I sent an email saying, look, here's the deal. I'm not going to let you get this webinar. We're going to close the cart like we said we were on the webinar, but I'm not going to sell it evergreen forevermore. If you don't buy it, you're not going to get it. You know, if you buy it, I'll send it to you the very next day, but that'll be it. You'll never hear from us again about this because it turns out I made a mistake. That ends up becoming the best email I've ever sent in my career. Uh, 46% of sales of that webinar happened on that last chance email. People lost their mind. They were like, oh my God, I only saw this two days later. I'm like, I sent you five emails inviting you to this webinar. You know, uh, sorry, it's really literally deleted. Like you really can't get it except for if you already paid for it. You know, like really honest promise, it's not marketing ease, whatever. Uh, but in the process, I was like, wow, this is really neat. Making online courses, you know, I'd been doing this for the last two years. I just never thought anyone cared how I did it. And it turned out they did. And I was like, oh, well, I can show it. Now there's other people doing their online course kind of thing. I think David Seitman Garland has one like that. And I've kind of, un I've not looked at it somewhat intentionally at this point because I'm like, don't copy friends, you know, and I just, yeah. And, and for all I know, it's the same, but I, I know that we do it differently because David's David and, and he's a showman and, you know, he's a shiny kind of guy. So in the process though, I was like, wow, there's a lot to this teaching thing. I didn't realize how much I knew. Oh, I better make sure they know this. And so it's been blossoming. So the whole, I'm sorry to tell this super long story, but the reason is that the whole experience, Charlie, has just been feeling like this so grounded feeling of like, I am serving 
one thing right now. I'm not running around trying to get dollars out of the air. I'm just serving people. And we closed the cart on this whole thing, by the way, the whole process of selling the, the webinar, then selling a discount to the people who paid for the webinar because we just felt so awful. And then just selling the cart for like one more week of like people come and get it. The whole process at price points of 20 bucks, 100 bucks and 200 bucks, we made $100,000. And I thought, all right, well, I haven't done that before. Like I haven't had like, for such low dollar products, I've not made a hundred thousand on one sales cycle in like a three week spam. So I was like, wow, I better show people how I did that too. So in the process, you know, when we closed the cart this last time, we said the next time we put this up for sale again, it's going to be at least double the price because now what we did was we went through and we started doing walkthroughs with people, Charlie. So we, we, uh, there's this company called Thinkific that does their own course platform. I found Greg Smith and I said, Hey, let's do a walkthrough of how it works. So as we're adding this in, it's of course adding value to the course because now I'm teaching you the technical side, do this, then click this, then open this thing or whatever. So of course you can add more value. So I don't know, that was such a super long answer to say that's me sparking. That's me getting excited about helping people because the end of that process is helping people make money. I think that's a perfect story though, Chris, because that's exactly like when I think of you and your work, like I remember when you did the same thing with Google Plus and you caught a lot of crap because you you were one of the first people to teach a, pay, a premium course on Google Plus and it was still an an emerging platform. And I was like, dude, like who better to do that than Chris because he gets in there, he figures it out and then he shows us how to do it. And so, you know, when I look back to those things that I personally cling on to, it's like, you've done exactly that. And, I, and that's, I think, one of the reasons that, that that's so well received. So thanks for sharing that, because I think that is really, really where we see you as well, Chris. Well, that's very kind of you. I, I think, um, you know, in my experience, all I keep trying to do is once I figure something out, if I can show other people, I'm like, hey, this is what I just figured out. I give away 90 plus percent of that for free. I mean, I, I showed people how this last chance email thing worked you know, as a kind of a bonus to people saying, hey, look, this this really just worked for me. So if you can use it and do something even better with it, I hope you do. Cool. So what has you uh, either afraid or terrified at the moment when in your career? Well, I mean, right now, I think just because that went so well that I'm like, I won't have another hit for like three years. You know, I'm like, oh, crap, you just blew it <laughs> all in one shot, you know. But if that's not, you know, I, I like being afraid, I think. I, I'm not a big fan of scary movies, and I'm definitely not a big fan of uh, scary rides. But I can tell you that I like being afraid because when you make mistakes or when you don't know what's going to happen, that's where all the cool kind of stuff happens. So I, I just find it's a pretty cool, useful methodology. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I just asked about fears. Let's ask about challenges. So what's your most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? Uh, I would say that it's probably to how to be, or, or I guess how to use the better parts of these weird internet marketing types of things versus um, following the exact same model that everyone else did. And then how to, how to always do it with that earnestness. I mean, like I just said, we, we accidentally stumbled across the best possible last chance email. Don't think that the satanic part of my mind was like, how else can I take this and make millions? You know, of course I'm a human. If you did it, if you accidentally made money, you didn't expect, you'd be like, I better do that again. But it's that next part of like, now, how do I not use that power for evil? And I think that that's the exciting part for me. So if people can only remember one thing about you and your body of work from this particular episode or in general, 
what would you have that one thing be? Good Lord, if it's from this talk, Charlie, they're just going to think, what a weirdo. Um, I would say from my body of work, I I really just hope that people said, man, Chris gave me some pretty good advice that I put to use in my own business or my own life and came away feeling pretty better. That's, I think that's the deal is, I mean, I'm hoping that people are going to not have to put it on my tombstone, but just kind of stand there around at the grave going, that dude helped me. Thanks so much for joining us on today's episode, Chris. Again, it's been an honor to, um, to hang out with you here. Well, you're wonderful. Thank you for having me. Alrighty, listeners. So take stock of what Chris has talked about today. Where can you fail and maybe find that insight that, that helps you go further? Or how can you take ownership and responsibility? Or perhaps that's how can you own your domain of knowledge or your expertise in a way that really serves people? Think about it and go out there and apply it. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.